Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Ben. G'day, Tim. And joining us via Skype today, Ben, is Diana Nguyen, comedian, performer, facilitator, guest speaker, and writer. And Diana, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. We've made we, it happen. <laughs> we have made it happen. It was a little while in the making, and you know, you've been very busy. Now, there there are a tapestry of themes through all of those things that you do that we absolutely love. And so we made a little bit of a list of things that we're going to maybe address um, through the course of this particular episode. And they are, in no particular order, of course, well, there is a particular order, (laughs) comedy, gender and ethnicity, sex, which isn't about gender, reproduction, which is definitely about sex, modesty, intergenerational conflict, your dancing, karaoke, nudity, and Keanu Reeves. Bam. <laughs> what we thought we'd start with, though, is your description of you. Now, I read actually in one of your profiles that you describe yourself as this. You're Australian-born, Vietnamese background after your mum decided to hop on a boat after the Vietnam War for freedom. She wanted you to become a doctor, pharmacist, dentist, lawyer or accountant, but none of those things happened. So, Diana, what did happen? Um, I fell in love with the arts. Um, that's what happened. And the funny thing is that my mum nurtured my arts love when I was a child. So I had big piano lessons when I was three, had ballet classes at uh, seven years old. Um, I, and you know, I, I, I was told to be musical until year 10. And I was like, oh, let's do the VCE subjects that you're meant to do now. Uh, and then that was the conflict I had with my mum from year 11 and onwards was I wasn't doing the top five subjects. And I ended up going to the arts wave and I call myself an actor and comedian. So that's what I would like to get paid to do uh, as an actor and comedian. But everything else comes under the umbrella of an actor and comedian. So you, um, a, a number of your, your uh, jokes, a lot of your material comes from your mother. Now, I've yes. read the book Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother got that we're talking slightly different ethnicities, but am I on the right track with that in my mind? Well, it is two different cultures. So Vietnamese is very different from Chinese culture. Um, so I, I, I don't align myself with the tiger mum, but uh, so I call it the tough, tough mothers. Mm. Um, yeah, so the Chinese, are, and another reason why I say that is um, my, there's a difference between migration and refugee. So when you're a migrant, you're coming to improve your life economically um, and for schooling and so-and-so. But for my mother, she came here because she had no choice and there was a war in her country and they had to flee um, because of death. So uh, 
if I don't align myself with the tiger, the tiger mum story, um, yeah, if that makes sense. So, it does. Yeah, so I try not to put them as the Asian tiger mum story. It's very different. And, yeah, so my so I would call it a tough, tough loving story about a Vietnamese mum. Uh, but I'm a Vietnamese mum. And when did you, you mentioned you fell in love with the arts and you, you mentioned things like uh, music and, and acting. When, when did comedy grab you? Was, is there a certain moment that, that you thought, that's me or that's what I'd like to do? Well, it's really, really funny. In grade six, I remember standing up at show and tell and saying, I want to be a comedian or a conductor, like a music conductor. And yeah. it's... And I'm thinking now that comedy must have been in my world at that age because um, Vietnamese parents used to love watching this sketch show. So it's kind of like um, SNL. It's like a version of SNL but for Vietnamese people. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it as a child and I think that kind of grew on me. And my mother's, they do say, you know, comedy passes through the genes. So I get my stuff from my mum and that's why she's a, a core of my comedy um, yeah, so I, I reckon from the ages of primary school, I was into comedy, but then I moved into more the serious acting comedy. So, uh, I, I've been an actor doing comedy and drama, but I didn't get serious into comedy until 2011, um, with the show Fee and Me. Um, that was an international comedy festival show. And then eventually like, going bald and deep with the stand-up show in 2015. <laughs> um, that was frightening shit. Like doing stand-up is not, I, it's kind of crazy how anyone could do that for a living. Well, hold that thought because we love talking uh, presence uh, and yes. stage presence in particular. But before we go there, how would yep. you describe your upbringing? Your mother came out on a boat after the war. How did that affect the way that you were brought up in a very foreign culture to what she had been brought up in? Um, well, in the mix of, you know, living with a Vietnamese refugee mother who couldn't speak English very well but could understand it, um, and also my mother raising three daughters on her own and so she, her, herself being a single mum, it was really hard for me, I have to say, um, because I was the eldest child and there's a lot of expectations on the eldest to succeed. And I think I grew up to be an adult very early. Like I was telling my friend today, like when I was the age of 10, 11 years old, I was mowing the lawn. I was the dad. Um, yeah. I, I became this adult um, to help my mom out um, because she was, you know, as anyone who's, uh, being a, a war survivor or has fled a country, there is a lot of trauma. And um, we know that it's psychologically it's passed from, it's passed to the second to third generation. So I uh, received this trauma from my mum as a second generation young person. Um, and, it was, and it was tough. And I think that's why the art was so integral into my upbringing because it really saved me. Um, it really uh, let me breathe Uh, it let me take a break from the real world and um, yeah I did a TED talk yesterday about it how 
the arts, if I didn't have the arts, I don't know what I would have become um, with, with all that. Like, I just couldn't imagine my life. Did it enable you to embrace your Vietnamese heritage in a way that maybe you wouldn't have normally if you didn't get into the arts? It's true. Like, my, my, um, the person that, like, my English is gone today because I'm TED talked out. But, um, my, my mother has been my inspiration for my work. And it, I, I've also realized at this wonderful age of 34 that, um, if I don't retain my mother's story, then the next generation, which is my future children, will lose that story that my mother worked so hard to be alive for. Um, so I guess what I'm doing and part of being an artist is to keep that story alive. And, and you know, people think because I'm Vietnamese and I look Vietnamese, I speak Vietnamese, but I don't speak Vietnamese very well. So by using the arts, um, it's my communication to my mum that I love her and mm. that I appreciate what she's done for me. And, um, and I hope that the future generations of the Nguyen's get to appreciate what this woman did for us. Which is beautiful to hear because I've, I've read you sort of reflect back on your childhood and there are periods where, um, you know, you, you felt maybe ashamed of being Vietnamese. You've mm. you've said before you wanted to be white and, and you talk about these repercussions of racism being that you, you never sort of embraced your, your mother tongue and, and it sounds like it was the arts that have sort of led you back to, to that link. It has and it's taken, taken me a while to understand how important the arts has been for me. Um, and, you know, you're talking about racism, like 1996, that's when, when Pauline Hanson came to town. Um, and I was at a tender age of 11. And, you know, they mm. say at age period, and you're going through, about to approach puberty as well. <laughs> mm. When identity and all that stuff all kind of happens and you're figuring out if you like boys and girls, you know, you're trying to figure out your life. Yeah. Um, and then you get racism on top of it. It's crazy. Um you, you, you kind of starting to, and that's what happened. I started to hide my skin color by being outrageously white. Um, you know, I, I loved watching cricket when I was a kid because it was my only way to be part of the Australian culture. It was on the Channel 9 every single yeah. day, the summer break. Um, I watched the football. I'm a mad Hawthorne member. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I just was very westernized because I just wanted to make sure that no one saw, they might have seen, they might see an, an Asian person, but they can never uh, think that I was Asian. I think that was trying to perceive. Yeah. Which, and it seems to be, and unfortunately we're, we're still seeing it in politics these days in places like we've spoken about, Marine Le Pen in France um, just recently and Gerd Wilder in the Netherlands, these kind of extreme nationalistic views just polarise opinion. And so it's almost like there is none of that beautiful middle ground where you can have a, a genuinely multicultural uh, discussion because you, you have to take sides. It, it, it really takes away the, the, um, the middle ground. Well, I, 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 I don't know if we need to take sides. I think that that's the conversation that um, we, and if I talk about Australians, 
um, we've chosen to pick sides. So that's the way the politics has narrated our history. It's either, and if you go back to the roots of the Australian history, it's either you're Aboriginal or you're white. And then if you're not white, we've gonna, we're going to kill and massacre your community to take the land. So it's always been that. Um, and for me, with racism, um, you know, we, we, I reckoned if people just spoke to their neighbours and invited them over to dinner and, and just found out their story and what their story is, we could take colour out of everything. Um, I worked in the community sector for eight years working with newly arrived refugees, Sudanese, Afghan, Burmese, all these um, young people coming to Australia uh, for a better life and I never saw colour with them. I mm. just saw them. And, yeah, uh, maybe maybe my lens is so bloody different. Maybe <laughs> because I grew up watching how hard it was for my mum that I... I I choose not to see colour. Yeah. I don't want to define someone by their colour. Um, and I try I try that every single day to be that person. It, it's funny talking about sort of trying to fit in as kids. My wife's family are Italian and came out post-World War II and her father tells a wonderful story of going to school with this beautiful antipasto lunch that his, his mum had made and him being so embarrassed and ditching this uh, focaccia and antipasto because he just wanted a Vegemite sandwich. And now, of course, you know, it's super trendy to have that sort of thing. And, you know, you see all the, the sort of Vietnamese restaurants coming in and the fur and this sort of thing. It's funny how it turns full cycle, but it, I guess as a kid you you probably want to fit in. Yeah, and I I certainly wanted to fit in being very Australian. And I think um, that was that's probably one of my biggest regrets for that period of my time of my life was not to learn my mother's language and trying to put that in the bin. Um, think, that is my biggest regret. Do you have a desire, Diana, to speak Vietnamese, to learn to speak Vietnamese? I do have a desire. Oh, uh, it, yes, I do. Um, but I make the excuse, and that's on me, of, of time. Um, I'm trying to juggle a career at the moment. Uh, and this doesn't sound so ridiculous. I also MC Vietnamese weddings because, <laughs> because I look Vietnamese um, and I can speak a bit of Vietnamese, but my Vietnamese is so standard. Um, so it's been so beautiful to connect with my culture when I've been invited to these weddings. Um, and every time I MC weddings, which I'm doing tomorrow night, I always go, oh, you could have gone to study a short course of, on Vietnamese. Um, you know, it always kicks me in the head like, oh, you could have done that. But uh, right now in my life, I don't have the time to. <laughs> but in saying that, my kids, when I do have children, I, I will make sure that they learn the Vietnamese language and many languages. I believe, really believe in, um, like, putting it into their brains, kids young, that their brain can do anything. Um, so, yeah, Vietnamese is, is a massive priority for me. Before we come onto stage, I wanted to ask you a question. Is it true that you hid a boyfriend of yours in the cupboard away from your mother? Yes, that was, mother? Uh, yes that was in first year uni, and then I got kicked out of home that day. 
yeah, Obviously, but, you didn't you didn't hide him well enough. No, but well, that's what I I have I've I've gone to school to talk about five ways to disappoint your Vietnamese mother, which is an Alice Alice Pong's book, and that's the question that high school kids ask me. They think I'm lying, and no, <laughs> I have a no filter policy. Um, it happens, um, and I it actually was a. I'm, I'm grateful that it happened. I'm glad that my mum did find him in the cupboard um, because it allowed me to be free from her. Um, it allowed me to be my own individual. It allowed me to move out and pay my own rent and not have someone clean my little laundry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it actually, I think, healed my relationship with my mum because they do say with distance, the heart is fonder. And um, I think my mother's, my mother and I's relationship is so much better that we're apart um, because, you know, she'll give me a call and say she misses me or, or she'll say, come home, there's food for you. And I know that she's thinking of me. Whilst when I'm living with her, it's not okay. It's not good. <laughs> well, in the future, if you need any camouflage and concealment lessons, we might be able to help you out with those. <laughs> Well, I'm 34. I'm pretty open. <laughs> I'm not the um, the 18 year old girl. I was legal as well. I was 18. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, yeah. Look, look, Vietnam. I should have just followed what people did in Vietnam. Just hidden tunnels, really. <laughs> An insurgent relationship. It, like might, it. it might have affected your dating, uh, your success in dating. However, if you're down the Coochie Chun tunnels. <laughs> That's going to be the new Tinder. <laughs> um, let's talk about your career. And I'm, I'm super interested. We've spoken uh, with a number of guests before about, uh, I guess, breaking glass ceilings and, and shifting paradigms and this concept of you, you can't be what you can't see. How important is it, do you think, to have... Uh, prominent role models, either gender, ethnicity, sexuality, out there doing things like comedy or acting? Oh, my God, it's so important because that's how people go, oh, that's what I I aspire to be. Mm. Um, Like when I was growing up, it was Margaret Cho. Uh, She was prominent in the comedy scene in the 90s, early Mm -hmm. 90s. Um, Hung Lee, who is from Melbourne, I call him the master. He was he was doing comedy early early nineties as well, uh, and it was so few of Asians. And I don't, I don't know if you remember the Joy Luck Club, the movie. Yeah, I do. Yeah, they had like five, six very powerful female roles with Asian women. But those and, and those were my only indicators that this was a possible career that I could have um, by these women, uh, by these. Asian artists who decided to, you know, be successful and be on screen. Um, I, and with the day and age that we're living in right now and with social media, uh, it, I really do believe in social media and the power it has. Um, and especially mm. with YouTube, a lot of Asian filmmakers have grown and built communities on YouTube, particularly Asian-Americans. Um, yep. Where I watched Asian-American you know, productions like Wong Fu Productions were in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, they were they were creating roles for Asians 
and and it was telling the human story without you know the stereotypical um, characters that we see usually portraying of of multicultural people. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, visibility is so important. So important. Yeah. And I guess, of course, more recently, Crazy Rich Asians, massive blockbuster, and then, of course, just recently, Parasite. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I, lo- I watched Parasite on Tuesday. I I couldn't stop thinking about it for two hours after the movie. <laughs> in fact, when you were trying to get a good Wi-Fi signal this morning, I had an image. You remember that scene in Parasite where they're sort of cramped up in the top of the toilet? <laughs> I was hoping that wasn't wasn't you. <laughs> No, that wasn't me, but I am. <laughs> um, but sometimes that is that is me because I, if we're talking about social media, I use up 120 gigs a month of data um, <laughs> trying to be visible. <laughs> so at the end of 120K, uh, after 120 gigs of data, I am freaking out. Now I might be on the toilet seat trying to find more data. <laughs> All right, Diana, let's talk about your discriminator. I guess you combine two things, gender and ethnicity, into a comedic act, but you talk Mm. about things that are highly inappropriate in a society that is trying to be super politically correct in this age of outrage. How can you successfully do that? With my stand-up, it's different from most people that I've seen, and most of my reviews reflect on it, which is I speak about my heart. Um, um, I don't know why it always goes back. It goes through laughter and heart, laughter and heart, but it always goes essentially back to who I am as a human person. Um, so I think that's how I've been able to do it and, um, stand out. What is your view though on, um, the sort of call out culture at the moment and I guess, uh, our quickness to to sort of be outraged um from our perspective we've spoken with guests before about uh the potential negative side this has on our resilience that that uh, people are often quick to go to victimhood um you know over over a number of different things do you have a view on that Mm. well we go to stereotypes because we're not listening um we go to stereotypes because that's the first thing that we think is correct and so, as I said before, if we take a step back, and you're you're right, we we are in a society that's very quick. And um, if we're talking about Trump, who recently said, "Why did Parasite win Best Film?" Um, uh, that that's him being quick with his social media, and uh, I don't know. I find him so interesting as a human being. He 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 wants to create outrage um, using the power he has. Um, you know, with the corona disease, like that is very topical at the moment if we're talking about race uh, um, and how social media has really um, vamped up uh, the discrimination of a group of people. Um, yeah, I... I I don't even know what to say about it. It's just, I, I think I'm just so used to it being part of life now. Mm-hmm. All right, changing topics slightly, let's talk mm. about 
performance and being on stage? Is it something that you enjoy? Yep. I've, I've been performing all my life. Um, so I, I have the, I think I do have a magic gene where I do love being with people and I generally want to entertain people and shift people. So I know that's my purpose. So the way that I prepare is, um, and if we're talking about exercises of how to prepare is I make sure I know who my client is. I make sure I go to the space and feel the space. And um, I find that people get nervous because one, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, number two, is that they allow space to confine them. And I'm a firm believer that if you come in and cut the space up and conquer the space with your body and voice, um, your performance uh, becomes alive. Um, yeah. We've talked before about Amy Cuddy and her, well, 58 million views on TED about uh, power poses and uh, holding a power pose. Do you do anything like that? Breathing exercises, power poses, to get your head inside a big crowd? Um, so I so I recently started teaching at a primary school um, and the kids are predominantly uh, Vietnamese background. And um, the reason why I was hired to come back into the school was to teach the students how to, exactly what you said, power poses, how to be strong in their physicality, but not just in the mind. Um, and so one of the things I do teach the kids is I get to get them to stand in a circle and I, I just talk to them and then I ask them, let's have a look at how we're all standing. And if you do this, do this with adults as well, uh, habitually we stand in a particular way all the time. I tend to stand with my hands in front of me um, held together. Uh, people put their hands up to their chests and, you know, hands, arms crossed, or people put their hands behind their back. And I, I do believe that the body tells everything that you're not saying. Um, and so when I am in this classroom with these children and watching them, I can tell which child is confident, not confident, um, or, you know, is a person that loves taking up space with their bodies. Um, and I firmly do believe, uh, and I should check out this TED Talk, um, that bodies, uh, we forget that the body has knowledge. And if we realise the power that the body has, we would learn so much more other than this is psychology, um, combined with psychology as well. Okay, Diana, your next show is entitled Chasing Keanu Reeves. Yep. Why do you want to chase Keanu Reeves? Um, because Keanu Reeves is hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> He's always been pretty hot. I, I, like, I, like, to be honest, I was never into Keanu Reeves. But it was only in the last 12 months when I became single um, that I just kind of what came attached to Keanu Reeves because there's this photo that went viral of him being sad on a bench. Uh, if you Google yep. Keanu Reeves sad on a bench, it'll come up with this 
photo and the memes all about and it's it. it's meme worthy, yeah. Yeah, and I just loved it because um, there's some, some kind of softness and realness to him being a celebrity. And um, I think that's what I want my future husband to be, to be sad on a bench. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and, and, his, and his, his career has lifted off in the last 24 months. Um, all these remakes, John Wick. Um, uh, and, of course, Always Be My Maybe. I mean, that that's a, an Ali Wong classic with him in, isn't, isn't it? Yeah. So he's just had a revival. His career... There's some kind of cult following happening around. Even men love him. Um, yeah, and I, like, this is, this is a podcast. I didn't find his acting quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> That's why maybe I was so detached from him. But when I saw him as a human being, um, I really liked it. I digged it. I digged it that he was human. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm you- chasing, chasing the human, chasing, yeah, chasing Keanu. That's a really sad picture of Keanu Reeves on a park bench. See? That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so if people come and see your show, what will they experience? Um, so the, the theme is about chasing and funny stories of me chasing um, love, uh, climate change. <laughs> <laughs> um, did, did Keanu Reeves cause some of that? A climate change may be in my body, but I don't know. It's a global world. <laughs> he fired a lot of ammunition in that John Wick. That that definitely yeah. would have contributed yeah, to climate change. Yeah, that stuff doesn't just make itself. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And, um, yeah, it's about chasing and also me realising that to be happy, I need to be happy with myself and that I don't need to chase a man for happiness. Um, so, yeah, there's a bit of a game in my comedy and, um, and also coming to the realisation that, Freezing my eggs is probably the best thing I'll ever do for, for me at this point <laughs> in my life. Um, so yeah, so I was telling people at my comedy show last night that um, for the first time in 12 months, I'm because I've been single for 12 months now, and only in the last three to four months have I been happily single um, because I realise I don't need a man to make me happy. Yeah. Hmm. And that's at 34 years old. I've been chasing men all my life. Um, so that was a bit of a breakthrough in this adult. Being comfortable with your own company. I, uh, I've always been comfortable with my own company in everything, but it, when it came to love in men, it was this weird attachment that I had. Yeah. And finally, uh, I've broken through the attachment. Yeah, it's a really good book to read as well about it, if you're interested. <laughs> we are. What is it? Um, it's called Attached. <laughs> Attached. Okay. Um, so there's some rec- recommended reading, the book Attached, and also recommended watching you in Chasing Keanu Reeves. Okay, Diana, to close out, we're going to ask you some quick questions and in return get some quick answers from you. Are you ready? Yes. If you could only pick one dance partner for the rest of your life, who it would 
who would it be? Does he or you know who that is? No. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> um, what's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, I want to dance with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Favourite music? Um, pop. Favourite artist? Uh, currently, uh, first thing I went in my brain was Adele. Adele. Awesome. I like Adele. What's the most Vietnamese thing about you? Uh, my skin colour. <laughs> okay, this is a bit of, oh, it could be an aligned question, but maybe not. Favourite food? Oh, uh, rice paper rolls. Oh, they're good. What part of uh, Vietnamese culture do you think should be more widely adopted in Australia? Ooh, um, karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do that already. We do that already. Um, probably respect. Your dream car? Oh, Volkswagen Beetle. Volkswagen Beetle? Hmm. Yeah, I used to have one, a yellow one. I think if you've got a Volkswagen, it has to be yellow, doesn't it? It has to be yellow. Or I would love a combi, though. I'm a surfer, so I I would love to put my surfboard into a combi. Well, yellow V-dubs started that Spoto game, isn't it? Whenever you see a yellow V-dub, you call out Spoto. But oh. uh, com- combi's fantastic, yes. Donut, who's your comedic goat? Who's the greatest of all time in comedy? Oh, there's three. Can I do three? Yes. Um, I love Ali Wong because she she yeah. said, hi, you could be me too. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave Chappelle, I love his brain mm-hmm. and I love how he presents comedy. And um, Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Okay. Final question. You have the ears of the world, Diana. What's your message for the world? Uh, whatever. I'm going to say what my brain thought. Is it be kind and have lots of sex? <laughs> because if those we things do, we're mutually happy. exclusive. Pardon? I wonder if those things are mutually exclusive. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't know if I want to have sex with everyone, but you know, be kind and be, have sex. A lot of so sex with whoever kind, you want. Be kind to everyone <laughs> and have sex, but not necessarily with everyone. And don't necessarily be kind to everyone you have sex with. Oh, oh I think that. No, you have to be kind. You have to be kind in order to have sex. Oh, you have to, oh, it's a prerequisite to be kind it's in order to have to sex. that end. I like okay. it. Hey, Diana, thank you very much for your time. It's been great chatting. Thanks great. for being Thanks on the Unfeeling 60. Thanks, Diana. <laughs> And I'll, I'll hopefully be at um, Perth next year for Fringe, so maybe we can get this in.
Yeah, we saw some comedy this year over here at Fringe. Just some great shows. That'd be good though. We can we can see if you've caught Keanu by then. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll <laughs> chasing him. We'll find out. <laughs> well, if he sits on that park bench, you'll you'll get him. He's not moving that fast. <laughs> Can't stop singing that I don't want you back, no No, I don't want to see you And I don't need you in my life no more I got my dreams Though you're not in the end Now darling, I I can't stop singing So you say you want to see me, call me, you say that all I want is you, oh, oh please don't lie to me again, you told me that you love me, I forget for a minute you're a cold-hearted woman, no, and then I see you with him again, I was left lying on the floor, writing down these words in this empty room, not tired. Can't stop singing that I don't want you back, no No, I don't want to see you And I don't need you in my life no more I got my dreams No, you're not in the end Now, darling, I Cause I'm not going back to this, to you No, no, so don't speak We are inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness. I can't stop singing. 